Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowl. Hello and welcome to another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. My name is Elliot and thank you for joining me on this holiday season. This is releasing on the 21st. As everyone is finishing up their preparations for Christmas and the holiday season and getting a little more time off from work probably and hopefully being able to get out there and do some more duck hunting. I hope that you are able to do that because this is a great time to just enjoy family, friends. And man, I love this time of year. It is by far my favorite time of the year. My favorite time. So starting at Thanksgiving day, or actually I'm off on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So start on that Tuesday when I got out, get off of work and I'm off for all Thanksgiving break to the point where I have to go back to work. Now, obviously, I've got to work in between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, but um, I get Christmas break and I go back to work this year on the 2nd of January. That time frame is my favorite time of the year without even a close second. That like Thanksgiving through New Year's Day, that time period, I get more hunting in the normal. There's more days off than normal. I love the winter. I love snow. I love fireplaces. I love um, the day of Thanksgiving. I love the day. I just love it so much. And there's one album. I played a song off this album last week, this Josh Garrels Christmas album called Gloria. And it is just the best, most festive Christmas album ever. And I have been, we, my family, my immediate family, my wife and my four kids, we've been listening to this album 
since probably uh shoot when 2000 about 10 years probably about 10 11 years and so when i start firing that album up typically right around thanksgiving i get the biggest rush of sentimental nostalgia and it's almost overwhelming honestly i'm 50 years old and i'm to the point now my wife and i are a blended family so when i married my wife um we blended our kids together which left us with two nine-year-olds an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and so our marriage has been the developing and the growing up and the passing of time with these children and if you if you're old enough that you have gone through this time of the birth of your children to them exiting the house that's when things in life really emotionally start getting i don't even know how to explain it i don't know if difficult is the right word you really start seeing your own mortality when your kids are leaving the house and and you've gone through that time of bringing them up through the toddler phase and and i i love nothing more than age two to six it is the best most adorable most wonderful time of a human being in my opinion is that two to six range and seeing your kids go through that and somewhere around third i'd say halfway through third grade to about halfway through fourth grade that last little trace of baby leaves them and that's really difficult to see that you even when they're in third grade you can still see that baby you can still see it and then it just fades and it's gone forever and that's a heartbreak it's it's great because they're going into these new phases but it's also very very difficult and then they go up through middle school and they go through an awkward phase they go through the whole puberty thing and and then they get up to the point where you know they just don't need you anymore and they exit the house and you're sitting there and looking at it and looking at life it's hard man it's it it, it it's hard it's a hard thing and anyway, this this album is so nostalgic. And when I play it and I put it on, so many emotions just flood over me. I'm going to play another song for you later on today from this album. I would definitely suggest you go and check it out. It's the Josh Carroll's Christmas album. Um, so today I am going to talk about something very, a major, major event took place in my life. Probably one of the largest events to ever take place. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to go through my most recent hunt, um, which was a very unusual hunt. I did it. I said, I told you guys a couple podcasts ago what I needed in my hunting life this year was some green, and boy, did I ever get that. And so I'm going to talk about that, and then we're going to do comment of the week. And I will tell you, I'm going to give you a little teaser for next Thursday. We've got the most controversial Woody's top five ever, ever recorded. So controversial. I had to go and download this recording of this Woody's top five, send it to a particular person and ask them permission to post it. I'm like, listen to this. If this is too much, let me know. And the person in question is good humored and understood the comedy of it and said, man, it's fine. It's totally fine. We're good. So let it rip. So that's next Thursday. Next Thursday. I wish it was today, but it's next Thursday. So be ready for that. So before we get in all of this fun, do not forget 
the sponsors, you guys still have a few days to treat yourself, to gift yourself or a loved one, or to tell your wife or girlfriend, hey, last second gift. Here it is. FABrand.com. <laughs> Get me those waterproof gloves. Get me that backpack, that waterfowl backpack that Elliot won't stop talking about. In fact, my next time I'm taking out the stand-up blind, I use that. Um, actually, I'm posting a video today where we use the stand-up blind for the first time this year. Go check out all their products. The product code is FDH10 for 10% off. FABrand.com. All of your waterfowl needs. Before you buy any new waterfowl gear, do me a favor. Go and look at what they've got. Look at it. Check the prices. The quality's great. The prices are good. Go check it out. Motion duck decoy spreader. I've used it on multiple hunts this season. I've had multiple people contact me either saying, man, that's the next thing I'm going to get. I'm, I know I need to get this. Or I've had people say, man, I use it. It is fantastic. So go and check it out. That water on the motion on the water on no wind days. We, you've heard me talk about it. Go check it out. That is also FDH 10. And then um, on X Hunt, make sure that's downloaded on your phone and you're using it with your friends. And then my personal app, the North American Waterfowler, which I am currently 13th in the leaderboards. Last year I was buried in the leaderboards. I've had a much better year. So and leaderboards are just fun. They're just fun. They don't mean anything, but it's just a fun way to enhance your waterfowling career. So there you go. So let me start this life-altering event. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of tell you about this. I'm gonna try to integrate this into um my hunt recap because this was one of the uh, more unusual hunts of my life. It was a solo mallard hunt, and uh, I had been using Onyx and looking at some waterfowl areas because I just do that from time to time. I just peruse through my old pens, check water, because they've got the new feature now, recent imagery. So it updates every seven days, and you get a new set of satellite data to look at. And so I go back, and I look, and and I was looking over this one area in my, this one location of my area that I haven't hunted for quite a while. In fact, I've only hunted one time in my life. And I'm like, man, that looks like water, where I didn't think water would be. Everything that I knew said there'd be no water in this one particular spot. And the imagery was showing different. And I'm like, holy crap, I have got to get feet on boots on the ground and go check this out. Now, I was pretty sure that there wasn't water there, even with this imagery. And I was right. It ended up being winter wheat, which I thought looked like water. But there was a riverbed out there that I wanted to look at too, because I knew it had been low. And I knew this time of year, the riverbed out there runs, you know, about calf to knee deep. And so I thought, well, I want to look at that also, because there could be mileage in there, find a low spot where no one's hunting them. So I went out on a Tuesday after school. I got convinced I had to go see this place. I rushed out after school and I went in there. And of course, where I thought might be water, there was no water. It was that winter wheat, but that old riverbed, as I was walking up to it, I saw somewhere between 300 to 500 mallards just coming from out of the heavens. 
I watched them come from a long ways away, a whole group of, and they just piled right down in. And man, was I, let me tell you, that's such an awesome feeling to be on just a random scout like that. And, and like, yes, I, yes. And I walked up to the, Georgie and I walked up to the bank and I've got video or audio and video of just all the quacking. And I'm like, heck yeah. Now they were coming in right at the end of the day. So I'm like, I don't know what their habits are. I, I, I don't know. I, I need to get more data out here. So I, I went out the next night as well. And all that huge group was not there. I, but there was three or four groups that came into that area right in the evening. So I'm like, man, I don't know. Is this place only good in the evening? Is this just where they're roosting in this riverbed and, and they only come in right at the end of the day or can this be viable? Um, all day. Now the, the first day there was at least 500. I don't know how many there were in there. Cause I, I didn't peek down in the river. I saw that huge group going there, but I didn't peek down. Cause I didn't want to scare them. I didn't want to put any pressure on them. Next day, there was four or five groups of seven to eight that were that were going down in there. So Saturday came, and I opted to hunt a different place in the morning, a different river in the morning. Well, I told you on the last episode, I talked about the um, discussion I had with that elder elderly gentleman about the river area that I was hunting. I ended up hunting there in the morning, and I thought, well, if I don't do on the morning, I'm going to go hit this other riverbed in the evening. Cause I know that's where they're going into it. I, and I'm pretty sure I can shoot some birds in there in the evening. So I went in to river a where my friend Josiah and I did not shoot anything. Didn't even pull the trigger. Talked to that fella about how long he'd been hunting in there and hunting the roosts and, and all of that. I got home. I'm like, man, I took a little nap and I'm like, all right, I'm going. I'm going out there uh, just by myself, and I bet you that I bet you that I shoot some birds in here. I know at least maybe it'll be the last 15 minutes of the day, and that's it. I don't know, but I think I'll shoot some in here. And so this was about a mile walk, and I, I had a cart with a sled on it, and all I had in this cart was motion ducks with the seven decoys, my gun, my camera bag, and another nine mallard decoys. So I did not have a huge load. And it was a nice, easy trail to follow for about half of that. So I pulled it in there. It wasn't heavy at all. Dumped the cart, pulled the sled through um, just grasses the last half mile. And when I got close to this riverbed where these birds had been, I heard it. You know, all the quacking the feeding guys, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds sitting exactly where I wanted to set up. And man, did my emotions ever go through the roof because they were right there, right where I wanted to be. Now this old riverbed was much lower than, um, the, the water does not go all the way up to the banks. You got really high banks and this video is going to come out. <sighs> You were listening to this the 21st. Let me see, 21st, 22nd, or 3rd, 24th. Shoot. Maybe Sunday. I don't want to put it out on. I might be able to put it out on Christmas Eve. I don't know. Somewhere between the 23rd and the 27th, this video is going to come out so you guys are going to be able to see it. Um, and I only took my GoPros because I was just trying to cut, I was trying to cut weight. 
And in this one spot on this little river channel, there's a whole log jam that's exposed. So I thought, well, I think I can just go and hide in these logs right on the edge of the water. That was the plan. That's what I can do. And that's where all these birds were. So I rushed down in there. I couldn't even hardly flush them all. There was, I looked down, there was a bunch of birds right where I wanted to set up. And then down about 200 yards on this bend of the river, there was a ton of birds sitting there just on the, there in the mud flats, like standing. And then on the other side of me, about 200 yards to 300 yards down, there was another bend in the river and some mud flats and there was ducks there. I couldn't even hardly get them to leave. Like I was, the group on my left took off. The group on my right, which was a little farther away, I'm like setting up decoys. I'm getting ready and they're still there. They're not even flying. So I'm like, no one's hunted these birds. These birds have been in here for a while and no one's hunted them if they're this comfortable. So I set up the decoys. I got set. I got um, all ready to go. And these birds kept coming. The wind was from left to right. These birds kept coming from right to left down the river channel. Now, out in front of me was really high, steep banks. And behind me was low banks. And they kept coming right to left. And all they wanted to do was land on that little bend of mud flats down to my left. Now, there was absolutely no place to hide down there. And I was not equipped with layout blinds or A-frames. or There's no way I could have hunted that. So I'm just sitting in these in this wood pile. But they're just, they're going coming by me at about 50 yards out, 55 yards out by the, just group after group after group after group. And so at some point before I even shot, there's like, I don't know, 500-ish birds on the bend on the left, 500. I, I, I can't even count birds on the right and they're just kind of trading back and forth and then finally i started realizing well some of these birds are going to make a mistake because some of them were coming in high and then like maple leafing down in but some were coming right off the water and i'm like if i scoot up forward in this in this wood pile i can shoot these birds now yeah it was past shooting but it was like birds coasting down low past shooting and so uh, I shot one, shot another one, and over the course of the next, but the the crazy. Well, let me take a step back. The crazy thing is, I shot, killed one. Within five minutes, they're all just trying to come back. Killed another one. They're all just trying to. I mean, they're coming right back. There's no like. It's like, oh, okay, someone someone shot. Let's fly around a little bit and just come back in and land. Obviously, they had been unmolested in this area for I don't know how long, a long time, but I mean, for December mallards to act like that. They've got to feel so comfortable in there. And actually, as the day went on, because I got out there like at two, so I only had like from two to five out of three hour stretch. Um, if I could keep get keep the birds off of the sandbar to my left, these mud flats to my left, I could decoy them into my decoys. If for the most part, if they if if a group got in there and landed down in there, I had no chance at decoying them and I was killing them at 35 to even 45 yards is, is for some of my shots, but it was, it was pretty easy shooting, but it was passionate. so the decoying wasn't the best, but the fact that I would look down to my right and I would see them all just floating down into this place, look down to my left, they'd be going by me and floating. The visuals were a plus the shots I were getting were as not as like C minus, um, but the visuals and the atmosphere was absolutely a plus. 
and it was such a fun hunt and i killed i killed my five uh and it was the first my first mallard limit of the year i'd only shot five mallard drakes before this hunt and i shot five mallard drakes on this hunt so it was really really fun really really satisfying hunt um, if I had been the last couple did it just perfectly right in the decoys, the, the first three were on the outskirts and I actually wounded one and he dropped a leg and he flew off. And, and I know that I had wounded him. And I felt really crappy about that, but, um, just a phenomenally unique, entertaining hunt. I think you'll like the video when I see it, when you see it, um, when I put it out. So right at dark then i it's time for me to get out of there so it had been a long day i had been in and out of river one with high banks and then i had um come clear down into this river number two and on the way out i was beyond exhausted i mean i was to the point by the time is only a mile and the gear wasn't that heavy but by the time I got back to the truck, I was having to do like walk 20 yards, sit down and rest. Like I was physically at the point of, I can't go any farther. Like it was hell. And, and I shouldn't have been that exhausted for what I was doing. I mean, it was just like overwhelmingly um, tiring. And, and the walk out of there just absolutely sucks. And it sucked. And and I, I was just saying, well, I was just tired. I mean, I had gone clear down in the river in the morning. I had been up since 3.30. So I just, you know, I my my tank was just completely on E. And that's why that I was so tired and, and all of that stuff. And so I didn't really think that much of it. And then Sunday came. And I was with my wife and I remember saying to her, I was like, man, I feel a little bit of pressure in my chest. I feel a little bit of chest pressure. And that was gone. No big deal. And Monday I wake up, I drive to work. I get there at 745. I go in and sit in my desk. And all of a sudden this pressure in my chest just came on like strong. And uh, I'm like, what? what's this? What's going on? And the more it started to build, I started to get anxiety to the point where I was feeling a little dizzy. And I'm like, okay, I got to, I don't know. I need to go to someone where I can just be with someone. And so I, I work in a school. Schools have a nurse. I went into the nurse's office. I'm like, man, I am having some really unusual, uncomfortable chest pain slash pressure. I don't know what's going on. And at that time, I assumed I'm like, this is probably number one. I've had a cough for like 10 days and um, also I completely overexerted myself on Saturday. So I assumed that this was just some kind of muscle thing. I really thought it was some kind of muscle thing, but this, this uncomfortableness that I was having was, was, was like nothing I'd ever felt. And I could not get any kind of comfort. And it was not painful, but just unbelievably uncomfortable. And I'm like, Jesus, do I need to? I'm like, if I go to a hospital emergency room, it's like that's thousands of dollars just right there. 
And I just did not want to go into a hospital because I figured this is just some type of cough or, or muscle strain. And I'm going to go into the, to the hospital and there you go. It's like $5,000 later. They tell me I'm fine, you know? So I probably spent a good hour and a half in the nurse's office. And finally I'm like, okay, um, I got to go to the hospital because this isn't right. And I'm starting to get really scared now. And, and it was just so much discomfort that could not be relieved no matter what I did. So my wife came down and got me. We went to nearest hospital and I walk in, tell them, go to the emergency room. And they're like, okay, well, let's get you back here and do an EKG on you. They hook me all up, do an EKG. And the next thing I know, they're wheeling me into a different room and it goes from being two nurses there to like eight nurses buzzing all around. They're talking about giving me morphine. And when I heard them give me morphine, I'm like, I heard the word morphine. I'm like, you're giving me morphine. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that was the point. I was like, "Uh Oh, this is, um, something serious here. And then like, all right, we're going to strip you down. And it's like, they strip all my clothes off me. They start putting all these, um, wires all over me and, I, and I'm like, okay, this is serious. This is serious. What is going on? And I don't know when the phrase heart attack was said, but it was said somewhere in there. They let my wife come in and everything and I could see how upset she is. And I'm just like, it's okay. It's okay. It'll be okay. Um, they wheel me into I don't know, some type of obviously surgery type looking room with a different set of people. And I think that's when they tell you, yeah, you're having a heart attack. And I'm like, that's when it's just like got so serious. And I remember laying on my back, looking straight up. And I was thinking like, Elliot, do you really believe what, you claim you believe because as you guys know, I don't talk about it all the time, but I've shared with you. I'm absolutely a believer in Jesus Christ and his teachings. And, and I believe in a little resurrection and I believe that I have a personal relationship with my creator, with our creator. And I just said, you know what? Um, if this is what I believe, then this is the time that I'm going to act it out. And, and first I prayed a little bit, apologized for some things about myself. I wish were different, asked for forgiveness for those things, for some of my disposition, prayed God, take care of my wife. And I just said, Hey, if, if this is the time that I'm going to die, let's go. It's going to be better, not worse. And I had total peace at that moment. I had total peace. And, um, looking back on that. It's so reassuring to know, A, I truly do believe what I claim to believe because in that moment, it was obvious to me that I believed in it. And just to stare the situation in the face and be like, okay, let's go. Um, it was so affirming for me in my life and knowing that when the time comes, that that's how it's going to be. I'm going to look life, death in the face. I'm going to look God in there and say, let's go. I'm ready to take me over there. Look, this is going to be better, not worse. Let's do it. And so it was so affirming to me in my relationship 
with Jesus that because we all have doubts. I mean, if if anyone says they've never ever had any doubts, then I don't know. They're either a, a extremely rare person or more than likely they're they the thought of having a doubt of your beliefs gives you guilt and you hide it. That's and there's some there's some churches that want people to hide, like if you doubt somehow that you don't really believe, which is just bogus. It's ridiculous. How could you not? How could you not? Um so it, it was affirming for sure. It was affirming. So next thing I know, they're wheeling me back out of there and they're taking me into ICU and they're, they, they, well, before I remember them saying, you're fine. It went great. I'm like, so everything's good. And they're like, yes, we've it's stable. You're cool. They went in, they went in through my wrist. I had a hundred percent blockage in one of my arteries, which they said, you know, if you don't get that taken care of within three hours, talking permanent, permanent heart damage or death. So I was definitely in a situation where if I had not gone to the hospital, there's a good chance I would have died or at least had some serious heart damage, permanent heart damage from the situation. So thank God that I went in there, got it taken care of. Um, They went in through my wrist and put a stent in there in one of the arteries of my heart, opened it up so blood could flow. And then I spent the next, 35 hours in the hospital with my wife. I was actually discharged last night. So I'm still kind of waking up from the aftermath of that because mentally it's been um, different, different coming through that and coming home and like any little tiny feeling in my chest I have like, what's that? What's that? You know, like the boogeyman's knocking. So, but anyway, I wanted to share that with you guys. The main reason I wanted to share that is I, I don't ever want this podcast to be a situation where I'm just preaching, 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 but I want to share about myself. I want to share my my beliefs and my thoughts and my life in, in that department. So if I have things happen where I can share with you guys some of my spiritual beliefs, then that's my plan to do that. And if that's helpful to you, that's great. Um, and if it's a, if it's a question that you've had about, is there really a God? Is there not a God? Who's the right God? I would just encourage you to look into that. If you have certain doubts or certain, certain questions about spirituality or about how can you believe this? How can you believe that? Please feel free to contact you to contact me and I will send you videos and resources on those topics. If it's like, well, how in the world could there be evil? Just if, if you've always had a question that no one's been able to answer for you, email me, reach out to me, and I'll find a resource for that for you. And it'll help you. Hopefully it'll help you and um, answer that question and, and, and move you forward in your spiritual life. So I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to do comment of the week. The song I'm going to play here for you is... The Light Came Down by Josh Garrels. This song, more than any other song, brings me nostalgia for my little family and my little kids in a way that's almost unbearable to listen to at times. The Light Came Down by Josh Garrels. Dark night, no. 
It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so moving on, man, and in comment of the week, there was a couple that I just really wanted to hit on. I still can't quite decide which one to do. Let's go ahead and jump into comment of the week. It's time for comment of the week. All right, so I'm going to do a mini one from Eric Oliver. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just give the kind of the synopsis and respond to that, and then I'm going to do another one by Hunter Roanfelt, um, and and answer that. So I'm going to give you the gist of the one from from Eric Oliver. This came from the North American Waterfowler Podcast page on Facebook, and the gist was he says this is trying to be constructive criticism, but. Um, he really appreciates my commentary on duck hunting. However, there's a great diversity of waterfowl hunting culture in North America that is very different from the experience in Kansas. Calling mallards into decoys, shallow freshwater. What about sea duck hunting from a rocky shoreline? Saltwater, black ducks. Tide means um, you can be in the water over your head one hour and dry land on the next. Think Newfoundlands who target mergs and roast them whole on the skin. Uh, and... um. He said, these and many other examples I'm probably not aware of across the continent are all valid and interesting examples of waterfowling in North America. If your podcast is truly about the North American waterfowler, I feel like it should be more representative of the diversity. And let me give my quick response to that. The North American waterfowler is not about the diversity. It's about the passion. It's about the breed of person that you are. So the person who is sea duck hunting on a rocky shoreline 
his passion, his obsession versus mine versus all of the examples that, that Eric gave that embodies a North American waterfowler. My experience based is the central flyway. And I have had people on here from New Mexico, Mexico, Virginia, California. If you, if I make a list of the different types of, of waterfowlers I have had on here, it's pretty diverse. And I would like to get into more of that because I find it interesting to me. But the reason I named this podcast, the North American waterfowler was about the breed of a person you are, not your specific, not to represent every different type of waterfowl in North America, but the breed of person you are down to your core and down to your soul. So most of this content here is going to be my experiences. Most of the content is. It's very, very difficult to do two episodes a week and just and pump out my other podcast and all my videos and my job and the app and, and be trying to line up guest after guest after guest after guest. It's just a lot. It's just a lot. I definitely am hearing you, Eric, and I would love to line up some other people from other areas in this off season. Maybe I can do that. But the core of what this podcast is, is about your obsession, my obsession. And a lot of it's just going to be my own personal takes and my own personal experiences. So I appreciate that comment, Eric, I'm hearing you. I'm going to look for areas to bring more of that. So thank you so much for being there on the North American Waterfowler podcast page on Facebook. Go over there and join also, guys, and be a part of that. All right, let's go on to Hunter's second comment. He says, listening to podcast 84, I have two main things. The first is whenever someone makes an argument that they have hunted a certain spot on public, and so therefore they have more of a privilege to hunt an area or get mad when someone new is hunting. It is such a large load of bull just because someone has hunted a spot for X years does not give them the right to be a dick to other hunters. As a younger guy, I get this all the time and it's honestly so entitled behavior from people that are quick to call my generation entitled hunter. I believe I agree with everything that you've said. Now hunter is tying that into on episode 84, when I met that elderly guy in the woods and he had told me that he'd been hunting that for 30 to 40 years now, and I said I wanted to honor that guy and that because the situation I was in, Hunter, was a little bit different. This was private land and private land access. This was not a public marsh. I, I And in the podcast, I said I wanted to honor that guy because he'd been hunting it so long. This just wasn't the same type of scenario as just your average general public land marsh. Now I was, even though it was a private situation. Now, once you get into the river where I was hunting, yes, that is public, but it's just a different, a different setting. And I, and I did not tell him I wasn't going to hunt it. My plan was absolutely to still hunt that, but I did want to honor the fact that he had so much emotional history tied up into it. If someone said the same thing to me on public land, if I go into a big old public land marsh and I meet someone in there, they're saying it, Totally different reaction on my part. Um, and I agree with everything you said there about public land. But I do think there's a difference between private and public um, as far as as far as permission goes. Um, and, and each situation is different. You know, if you're talking a 75-year-old guy who's winding down his hunting career and he's the only person that's been hunting this place for the last 30 years, and then I come in and I'm beating him in there every time, and let's say the last five years of his life where he can hunt. 
this place that means the world to him, this defined his whole hunting career. He's now no longer to hunt it. I just think that's a little cold on, on my part, just to completely disregard that history for that man. But I, I agree with what you're saying in general, Hunter, on, on public land. The next part, Hunter goes on to say, the question of actually hunting a roost. Where I'm at, there is so much pressure that to think someone won't hunt a roost is laughable. People still get mad whenever a roost gets busted up, but it's going to happen when we have a hunter density, we do. Also, when people get mad about a roost getting busted, they are really mad that their hunt didn't go as planned. And I have been on both sides of this, and I have to say that sometimes you are the pigeon and other days you are the statue. Take the loss of a day's hunt, and move on. And again, I, I agree completely with Hunter on this one when we're talking about public land. Public land marshes are the nocturnal roosts. So in my particular area and other areas that I've seen, when birds go nocturnal, they're feeding in, they're roosting and feeding in the best food source of the whole area. And that becomes the roost. And on public land, you hunt roosts. You just do. There's if you don't, someone else is going to. A public, a public area where it's just public land marshes, there's no saving roosts. And again, in episode 84, I'm talking more like, you know, if you are up in North Dakota and you find a private lake that is the one roost that is supplying everyone in the area their field hunts, I wouldn't hunt that. I don't think that should be hunted in that situation. It's supplying everyone with their birds. And so that would be the situation in which I would say don't hunt a roost, my opinion. Um, but when you're talking public land, public land marshes, it's just a different animal. It's just a completely different animal. So um, I, I think that maybe I needed to clean up um, some of the things that I had said from podcast 84. I needed to clean that up a little bit and, and be a little bit more clear because it seemed like maybe I didn't quite make the distinction from public areas to private. So that is a comment of the week. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you for joining me. Um, support the partners. Come on over to the Facebook group. Reach out to me on Instagram or email me if you have any comments or things to say. I appreciate you guys listen, listening. And until next time, you've listened to another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. Light of God